0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. The uh, text, of course, is is printed in your bulletins, just on the next page of of where we we just sang. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. We are wrapping up our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians, looking at chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 2 through 18 to the end of the book. So again, from Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2 this is the word of the lord continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving at the same time pray also for us that god may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of christ on account of which i am in prison that i may speak make it clear which is how i ought to speak walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Erecharpus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. There is a, a picture of the life of faith, which I think is really compelling. I think it's really helpful as this kind of visual metaphor for us. Uh, it comes from one of the elder statesmen and fathers of, of our denomination, the PCA. He's now a retired pastor named Charles McGowan, and he talks about doctrine being the skeleton of the faith. I think it's really helpful. Doctrine is the skeleton. Uh, it's, it's the structure uh, that we need. Uh, but but and skeletons are important. They're they're essential. They are the structure. But of course, you need more than just a skeleton to have a healthy body, right? And so, skeletons uphold the muscles and the tendons and the veins and the organs. They have to operate. They have to grow. And here's where I think the the the, the visual metaphor is helpful. If the doctrinal skeleton is the only thing, or even the main thing that people see then that shows that your faith is malnourished. It shows that your faith is sickly. Perhaps it's even dead. I think that's really helpful, right, when we think of the importance of doctrine, what we believe about God and Christ and creation and redemption and everything else under kind of that umbrella of doctrine. But if that's all we see in a person's Christian life, then that looks like malnourishment. And I've thought about that picture because this is so much of what Colossians is for us. It's this beautiful letter and it helps construct this this wonderful Christ-centered, Christ-exalting skeleton. But then toward the end of the book, Paul puts flesh on this body. As we wrap up this letter, I'm always thinking when we're done with the series, what's like the one thing that we can walk away with? I mean, it's hard enough for me. I preach through the book, but, and, and, I, and I forget what I preached a couple of years ago, right? Well, well what are the one, what's the one thing that we wanna walk away with after reading this book? And I hope it's something like this, is that Colossians is all about the greatness and glory of Jesus. It's all about the greatness and glory of Jesus, and so may we not grow tired of of seeing and returning to this greatness and glory. The sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus is what Colossians is about, but it's also about how that sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus is pressed into every nook and cranny of our lives. Colossians helps us to think about what it means to be a disciple. To be someone who brings these glorious truths about Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who, is, is the, uh, who, who provided atonement for our sins, how do we press those truths into our everyday lives? Well, last week, we looked at how the gospel impacts our very ordinary relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children. This week, we have these concluding exhortations or applications of what this Christian life looks like. And much of what we're going to see this morning, it's about what it looks like to those who are outside of the church. How are we reflecting these truths to the world? The two final points this morning, as, as we wrap up the, this letter, I, I was very creative in giving a title to this sermon, it's, it's watching and walking, because our points, of course, are just, it's watching and walking, but I think these, these are big pictures that are helpful, and we'll unpack a lot of things under each heading, but these give us really, really good marching orders of what it means to live out of the glory of Jesus, that we are a people who are watching, and we are a people who are then walking. All right, so let's unpack what those mean and all of the ways that we are watching and walking people. So first of all, Paul calls us, he calls the church, right? He's writing just instructions to ordinary believers inside of the church, and he calls us to this life of watching, which is another way of saying something that we talk about often, which is certainly the Christian life is the praying life. We, we have to get our minds around that, right? This is one of the first applications of what it means to be a believer in Jesus is that we are a people who are called to be praying. That sounds standard. It's easy to understand, but we all can attest it's not easy to do. And so, what does the life of prayer look like for Paul? And the first thing he says is you are to continue steadfastly in prayer. This is very similar to a more well known passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're called to pray without ceasing. And and the idea here is the prayerful life. So, this isn't just praying before a meal, it's not just periodic times of, of praying. It's also not the idea of spending your life in a prayer closet as if hours upon hours of everyday life are to be doing nothing but praying. This is an invitation to a life of communion with God. You make prayer just this regular part of your life. What that means is you, you are confronted with the need and so you shoot off a prayer, Right? You're always in communion with the Father. You're confronted with something good, and so you respond with gratitude, and you throw up a prayer to God. Someone needs prayer, and you don't just say, I'm going to pray for you, but I, I, I'm, let's pray, because prayer is built into the infrastructure of our lives. It's a habit always with us wherever we go. We're always in this consciousness that, that responds to this openness to God, right? Living open with God, always praying. Continuing steadfast in prayer. That's the first aspect. It's not the only aspect of prayer, but to be a people who are constantly in communion with God, open to God. The second aspect of a life of prayer is being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful is the same language that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he's crucified, Jesus calls on his disciples to to stay awake and keep watch with him and pray. It's the idea of alertness, staying awake. The danger is that we can sleepwalk through life. I think you could probably argue that when we're trying to summarize the culture in which we find ourselves, I think that's a pretty compelling um, idea of what the culture is. It's a culture that's asleep. It's a culture that, that sleepwalks, and we are tempted to kind of join in that kind of being aloof, being asleep to the realities of the world. One of the least talked about sins is sloth. And I think it's because we don't really understand what sloth means because when I say sloth, and this makes a lot of sense, what comes to your mind? Laziness, right? Sloth equals laziness. But that's not really true at all. Laziness is, a, is a, it, it's an application or it's the result of sloth. Uh, but it's not technically what sloth is. Um, the idea of sloth came from what our, what our old theologians called the sin of asadia. A sadia it's a lack of concern or a lack of care The great 20th century author Dorothy Sayers defines Asadia this way, and she's talking about the 20th century, and you could argue this has just continued with full force and momentum into the 21st century. Dorothy Sayers says this about Asadia or sloth it is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. That kind of fits the culture that we're in. What are we living for? What is the purpose of life? One of the main tasks of the church is to insist that there are important questions to ask. Uh, The the, the problematic part about the culture we're in is not that, that our society provides the wrong answer to the right questions. It's that we've given up asking the right questions. You see, sloth is a lack of faith in God's providence and care. It's a lack of hope that God will keep his promises. And so watchful prayer is this active fight against this pervasive spirit. It's the insistence that there is meaning and goodness and beauty and truth. And there is so much to be thankful for because God is so active as our Father providentially in this world. Paul calls us to be watchful with thanksgiving. That word of of thanksgiving or thanks or gratitude, it just keeps popping up in this little letter. And, And I think what we see is there's a pattern of prayer that we have to have that's just part of the Christian life, which is we have needs and so we pray to God and then we watch. We prayerfully watch to see God work. And so often he does. So often he does and then we respond with gratitude and we start the cycle over. Year after year, decade after decade. It's living with eyes open, with hearts open to where and how God is working in your life and in my life. Uh, The theologian, the reformer John Calvin, um, he, he asked the question, you know, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? Uh, if, if God already knows what we're going to pray before we even ask, that's so what Jesus says to us, is that God knows what we're going to say before we say it. Uh, if, if he has established all things and does all things according to the counsel of his will, why do we pray? And he offers six reasons, but let me just give you one of these reasons. And this comes from his, his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says this, and I, and I love this idea. He says, we pray, at least partly, that having obtained what we were seeking... And being convinced that he has answered our prayers, we should be led to meditate upon his kindness more and more. I think prayer journals are helpful here. This is different than those kind of prayers that we just shoot off throughout the day. It's, it's, It's documenting and it's tracing God's faithfulness in your life. It's to be able to see where he has been at work. It's to remember all of the times that God has been faithful. Uh, Friends, we need to have a back pocket of experiences in our lives where we can go back to and say God proved himself there when I didn't believe he would. God proved himself when I I didn't prove him. I didn't believe that he he would do what he was going to do, right? But so often in our lives, we have these examples of God's faithfulness. All of those times that God has proved himself faithful And so we pray steadfastly, which is a life lived open to God. We pray with watchfulness, which is a kind of intentionality, right? Trying to get those experiences to put in our back pockets as we walk with God. And then one more thing Paul says about prayer in our passage here in Colossians 4 is that prayer is to keep you on the front lines of kingdom work. It's to keep you on the front lines, Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul isn't prescribing prayer because it's just what religious people do. Paul is trying to help us see that God hears our prayers and they have a real impact in the world. Paul asks for prayer for his ministry that God would open a door for the, the message of this mystery of Christ and that Paul would proclaim this message clearly. Notice what he doesn't pray for. He's in prison right now, right? He doesn't pray that he would be released from prison. He didn't really care about that. What he prays is that that message would go forward, that the message would go forth. And Paul can't do that on his own. He can't make that message go forward and be effectual. God has to do the work. Now, what does this mean? For us what does it mean for you not every believer is called to the ministry fair enough but every believer is called to ministry and there are a number of ways that this that this looks in in your life uh, but one of the main ways that you are called to ministry is that you are called to pray now this passage, passage in general has to do with, with evangelism, of bringing that gospel out into the world, bringing that proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done to those that don't know him. And so Paul calls on the Colossian church, I need you to join in that work, to be on the front lines with me praying. Your prayers are vital. Now there are a couple of applications here for us. The first one is, are, are we praying regularly for those who don't know Jesus? That's the first application, right? Are we praying for those who don't know Jesus? Are we praying for opportunities to present the gospel? Are we praying for doors to be opened, just like Paul calls upon us to pray in Colossians four? Maybe another application. This is a selfish application, but will you pray for me? Will you pray for Dan? Will you pray for those who are bringing the gospel out into the world? This also pushes back on two misconceptions that we have to deal with. The first is maybe a tendency in the church that there are some of us who overestimate our roles in ministry. This is where we think that everything is up to us, right? It's it's my job to convince someone of the truth of the gospel. I I will have to to, to do everything I can uh, to be as eloquent as I can, to be as knowledgeable as I can, because that person's soul is dependent on me. I have to do everything to get this person to believe, but that typically leads to very unhealthy dynamics, right? It can lead to control and manipulation. It can lead to this kind of living in a state of guilt and anxiety. The goal, I've I've heard this before, is just a wonderful goal for all ministry, which is to bring people to Jesus and then leave them there, where he can do his work. But I can't change a heart, Right? I can't change a heart. You can't change a heart. And so we can overestimate our role in ministry. But then there's another problem, and this is very, I think, relevant to churches like ours. We can also underestimate our role in ministry. We can say God is sovereign. God is in control. God will do what God will do. We confess in this church God will save who God will save. And so it doesn't really matter what I do. But the question I have for us is, do you think Paul believes that? Because Paul asked the Colossians to pray, because I believe Paul thinks God uses your prayers. This is the mystery of prayer. Uh, there, there's one way we don't talk about it very often when we, when we think of prayer, and it's that God uses prayer as a means of accomplishing his purpose. That's at least one reason he uses prayer. God knows the end from the beginning. That absolutely is true. God will do what God will do. But have you ever thought, according to the counsel of God's will, he's also ordained that he uses your prayers as the means to accomplish his will? I can't guarantee this, but I'm pretty sure that God has used the prayers of you to heal people. God has used your prayers to save people. Because he uses prayer as a means to accomplish his will. That's what Paul believes. I need the door to be open to present this message. God has to open the door. Will you pray with me that he does? So we're called to be a praying people, a watching people, not passive Not locked away in prayer closets for hours upon hours, but always in prayer. Intentionally looking to see where God is at work. Joining the front lines of ministry, of kingdom work, of seeing God expand his kingdom across the world. And then secondly, and this is our our second point, so that's the watching, right? Secondly, we're to be a walking people. A walking people. Now what does that mean? It's not just walking with Jesus, which is such a wonderful picture of what it is to be a disciple of jesus but look at verse five walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time Now, the sentence in 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 greek and I, and I hate doing this uh and bringing up the greek but there is i think a really helpful like momentum in in the greek which is it's it's, it's a little bit different and, and hopefully you'll hear what i mean by momentum because what he says and, and it could be translated this way is in wisdom walk toward outsiders Now, it communicates the same thing that we have in our translation, but I love the momentum that, okay, we're already in wisdom, and we'll have to define that in just a little bit. But in that wisdom, now walk towards, right? There's direction. There's direction in this exhortation that Paul gives us. Now, this is helpful because what we see here is not only are believers not to avoid outsiders, Right? We're not just to go build our spiritual cul-de-sacs, but in the wisdom that we have in Jesus, we're to walk toward the world. Earlier in Colossians, we're told that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Colossians 2, 3. And so our calling is to follow Jesus as God's pattern for life. Our lives are to reflect this wisdom toward others. Now, how does this happen? We depend on Christ as the one who has all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge contained in him. We stay close to him and then walk toward the world. We walk in a wisdom that looks like Jesus. I think this is different than what would Jesus do, if you remember that phenomenon, the WWJD. All right, we, used to, we used to wear bracelets, and we, in any situation we're in, we'd, we'd look at our bracelets and we'd ask the question, or we, that was the intention, is what would Jesus do? Now, that wasn't, that wasn't the worst thing in the world. There, there are far things worse than, than what would Jesus do. I think in many ways it was, it was relatively helpful, but it was insufficient. And let me hopefully give you an example of why it's insufficient. Uh, most of my life, most of my sin, most of my sanctification happens in the context of me being a husband and a father to three children. If I'm in a marriage conflict, a time of marital conflict, or if I am struggling as a father to love my children well, there's a certain disconnect, a certain unhelpful hypothetical in saying, what would Jesus do if he had three children? What would Jesus do if he was married to my wife? It's it's just unhelpful. He wasn't married and he didn't have kids. And so instead, go back to Colossians and everything we've seen here. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what would you do As someone who has died to your sin, as someone who has been raised to new life in Christ, as someone who is seated with Christ in the heavenlies, what would you do, husband? What would you do, wife? What would you do, employee, as as one who is so united to Jesus and empowered by him to live in a way that is fitting as a citizen of his kingdom, as a citizen of grace, See, what would Jesus do is fine, but what would you do as someone who is so united to him in the place where you are called? That we be a people ready, willing, and able to do and say what is fitting for citizens of the gospel to say and do. That we would be ready and able to embody the mind of Jesus always, everywhere, and to everyone. See, that's the wisdom of Jesus that we take to the world. And so we walk toward outsiders in everyday life. This looks like doing everyday life with with other people just like Jesus did. Uh, Think about some of the most powerful moments of Jesus' ministry were just ordinary moments. Jesus getting water at a well. How many meals did Jesus share with people, interacting with those who are around him? Right? This isn't having to go somewhere to do ministry, but it's instead, where are the relationships that God has already placed in my life? And so go, walk toward them and into them in the wisdom of Jesus. And then Paul says, make the best use of the time. It's a commercial phrase, as if time is a resource to be spent, so redeem the time. Other translations say, make the most of the opportunity. And so the question is, how do you make the best use of your time? What does it look like to redeem the time as you walk toward the world? And, and certainly, it, it would mean something like investing in relationships. I think that's related to what Paul is saying. Again, if Jesus is our model, which he certainly is, think about his ministry and and how so many of the most important moments in the ministry of Jesus are what we would call interruptions. You could say the woman at the well was an interruption. Um, You could say Jesus is on the way to heal Jairus' daughter, and the woman with the bleeding issue gets his attention, and he is interrupted. How much of Jesus' life is, is one big interruption to the point where you might say, are those really interruptions at all? And I think this is one of those models that Jesus gives to us. And this is a hard word for me because I have bought wholesale into the modern virtue of efficiency. I have bought wholesale into, I'm I'm busy, I need to stay busy. My justification is built on just how busy I am. And so people become interruptions. My own family can become an interruption. We can struggle with the idea of, there is my neighbor out doing yard work, and I could go speak to my neighbor, but that is an interruption. I need to go in and do what I'm supposed to do. And I think Paul says, no, no, no. Those interruptions, those relationships, that is life. That is life. Redeem the time. Make most of those relationships. It's also a re examination of our relationship with time. We live in a busy, overworked, over uh, informed, over entertained, over amused world. I think much of the stress and chaos of life is that we always live reactively because we buy into that busyness-as-justification kind of idea. And so we're always reacting, right? We're never settled. We're always reacting. And so certainly part of this is make the best use of your time by restoring patterns of healthy time. This goes back to prayer, right? Regular times of prayer help orient our calendars as much as anything. Practice of Sabbath. Sabbath. One day a week, we step back from ordinary time. We live in a world of 24-7 everything, don't we? And we live in a world that is empty and a world that is absent and a world that is dark. If you were to identify if you look out into the culture and say here is the evidence that our culture is this kind of post-christian godless society what are the examples you give right and you might say it's the sexualization of culture it's the materialism of culture might I also suggest that the 24-7 world we live in is just as much a rejection of the creator we weren't created to live this way it goes back to a sadie of trying to find purpose and meaning. I think one of the most spiritually powerful messages we have just by driving in our communities is what seven out of 10 billboards is either cannabis or casinos. Why? We're just trying to find meaning. And if we're not trying to find meaning, then we're trying to escape the meaning that we, that we found. We're trying to escape the lack of meaning that we find. But Paul calls us to do something else, to live our time with waiting, expectancy, and hope. A life of faith, hope, and love, right? God's kingdom is coming. His will will be done. And so in the meantime, I walk in the way of Jesus toward others. Now, what does that look like in particular? Well, then Paul moves to speaking. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person speech should be gracious it's not sentimental it's not soft on truth I mean think about Jesus right John 1 14, he's come he's full of grace and truth you could live your whole life just glorying in what does it mean for Jesus to be full of grace and truth and why can't I ever get that mixture right <laughs> but that's the goal and so our speech should be fitting for those striving to have the mind of Christ it should be marked with compassion and love also, honesty and courage. Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. There's a big kind of intramural debate in our churches right now about how to relate to the broader culture as it moves in that decidedly a post-Christian direction. Right? It used to be that we lived in a country where we're going to church and, and being a Christian was typically a good thing. It could even advance you in your career. And now we live in a world where, where to be a Christian can actually be harmful to your, repu- uh, to, to your reputation. There's a certain animosity that much of the broader culture has toward the teachings of of Jesus, toward the church. And so the question is, how do we relate to that culture? Do we get in the trenches and get nasty with them? Because that's what everyone else is doing. After all, Jesus says the world will hate you. The world will hate the church. Those in darkness hate the light. And yet I would contend that this passage means something, doesn't it? this passage still tells us how to communicate the truth and it's gracious. Which is, by the way, a direct application of the sufficiency of Jesus. If Christ is sufficient to save me and I have done nothing and there's nothing savable in me, I I provide none of that sufficiency, then everything I have is of grace. And I'm to reflect that graciousness to a world that is lost in spiritual darkness. Our speech is to be gracious And seasoned with salt. What does that mean that our speech is to be seasoned with salt? I think it's this. We have a duty to present the truth in a way where we give it the best chance of being received. I'll say that again. We have a duty to present the truth in a way where we give it the best chance of being received. To go back to that salt language, we we make our message palatable. In the ninth commandment of the, the, or in the Westminster Larger Catechism, which summarizes here the duties and and violations of the ninth commandment of of bearing false witness, right? So that's right speech. Uh, It just throws in, amidst a whole bunch of applications, it says, which I think is interesting in Colossians 4, it says this, one violation of the ninth commandment is speaking the truth unseasonably. Now, I think we know what that means. It means that Every proposition that has come out of our mouth is 100% true. And yet the way that we have spoken that truth has done a disservice to those truths that have been spoken. That's a violation of the ninth commandment, to speak the truth unseasonably. If there's too much salt, you can't eat the food. If if, If there's not enough salt, it's bland. Salt makes good food taste great. Think about a good chocolate chip cookie. What makes that good cookie great? All the, no, not sugar, a little salt. A little salt right on top, right? We, we still have a little bit of candy in our house um, from, from, from Halloween, and, and here's, here's a debate that I can settle for all of you. What is the best candy uh, that you can find in the United States? It's a baby Ruth. I know some of you are like, I haven't had a baby Ruth in 25 years. What are you talking about? Do you know why the baby Ruth is so good? The peanuts are Salty. The peanuts are salty. I'm serious. They're delicious, by the way. (laughs) But see, it makes those good things come across to be palatable, to be received well. And so what does this look like? It means communicating the peace and joy you have in the gospel as you talk about the gospel. Understanding the person that you're speaking with, maybe even advocating for truth and justice, that's certainly part of what we're called to do as a church, in a way that is shaped by this commitment to loving your neighbor and longing for God's perfect kingdom that is sure and it's coming. To be aware of how we're heard. Isn't that it? To be aware of how we're heard. If you're on social media, I think this is a particular uh, important application because oftentimes we have a different persona on, online. And yet that's still how people are hearing you. And so that importance of how are we heard. And so the question would be, if someone has gone to my social media page, are, do they think of me as a gracious person? Do they think of me as a gracious person? And the result of walking toward the world with gracious speech, beautifully seasoned, is this really fascinating application because Paul anticipates that the world will have questions for you. If you live in a way that is gracious, that's seasoned with salt, that's committed to the good of your neighbor, that's committed to the love of God, Paul anticipates if that's true, your neighbors will have questions of you, such as the why questions. Why do you live the way you do? Hey, I've been been looking at your family. I've been looking at your life. I've been seeing the way you live. Why do you have hope? Why do you go to church? Why do you forgive? How can you forgive? Why do you spend money the way you do? In other words, Paul is saying our lives lived out of the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus should promote questions. Should promote questions. This is Colossians. This wonderful little letter that encourages us to live our everyday lives in light of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. As part of our reading, I I included the final greetings that Paul sends. I mentioned early on that this scene gives us a a more accurate picture of what Paul writing a letter would look like early on in this series. It's, It's not the Renaissance paintings of Paul by candlelight with quill in his hand, but instead it's a small group Bible study. Uh, Paul says that he writes the the, the final greeting with his own hand. In the ancient world, literacy meant you you could read, but you probably couldn't write. Paul was very educated, so he could kind of write, which meant that he took over from the scribe that was there, and then he wrote in big old block letters that were probably kind of ugly, saying, this is from my hand to you. But I love the small group Bible study that we see here. By the way, don't you want to be there? Did you notice that this room has Paul, Luke, and Mark in it? That's over 60% of the New Testament right there. That's a good Bible study, right? But what I love in this list, even though it's certainly extraordinary, is that there's still a remarkable amount of ordinariness in it. We have all of these names and also all of these wonderful titles like, this is, the, this is what the church is called to be. We have beloved brother, beloved faithful brother, faithful servant, fellow slave, slave of Christ, fellow prisoner, co-worker, brothers and sisters. And so this picture, right, is that we have these men and women and slaves and freedmen, Jew and Gentile. We have this socioeconomic diversity. There's racial diversity. There is demographic diversity this wonderful snapshot in history of the power of this message to create new realities and a new community of the faithful who are heaven-bent on uniting around the greatness and glory of Jesus. So what will it take for us to live into this calling? Same calling that the Colossians had. It's everything we've seen today. It takes prayer that God would do a work as we walk toward the world, striving by God's power in the Spirit to bear witness to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in word and deed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap up this, this months-long look at the letter to the Colossians, my prayer is that... By your Holy Spirit, you would seal this word into our hearts, especially as as we think about the skeleton of the greatness of Jesus, the preeminence of Christ, the sufficiency, the supremacy of who he is and his work for us, that in him, the fullness of God is ours. And that our lives are to be lived out of that fullness, which already belongs to us by faith. And So Lord, would you build us up in that reality? and once we are built up in that reality as we are built up in that reality would we go forth into our relationships into our callings our vocations our advocations all of the place all of the places where you have placed us all of the relationships you have surrounded us with and you would empower us you would strengthen us in the wisdom of jesus growing in us the mind of Christ, having Christ formed in us as we seek to serve our neighbors, as we seek to live our lives before you, walking with you in faith. Lord, would you do this work in our lives? Would we be able to see, even the very ordinary lives that that we have and the very ordinary callings we have are extraordinary uh, because of who we are in you and because of what you have done. Lord, would you do that work among us?